I love studying leadership. I think it is a fascinating subject. Matter of fact, I've got Mount Rushmore on my bookshelf. I've got uh, biographies of Washington, of Jefferson, of Teddy Roosevelt, and I have five biographies of Abraham Lincoln on my bookshelf. Literature knows a lot about leaders as well. Shakespeare knew the power of leaders to send a message. Kings were the subject of his most memorable tragedies. Hamlet, Macbeth, King Lear. Most often these leaders are forceful, strong-willed, and aggressive in their leadership styles. Other leaders, however, are more patient, more thoughtful. Sometimes they seem to us to be tentative, in the midst of crisis and difficulties. But usually it's the first kind of leader that is admired by us, the the one who goes for the jugular, the the one who is a man of action, who is the, the shark on the hunt for the kill. We tend to idolize that kind of leadership. So this morning, we turn to the book of 1 Samuel to look at two leaders at two kings of Israel, the, the first two kings, the, two, the first two earthly kings of God's chosen people, and the contrast they set before us. In doing so, we will learn the lessons regarding the kind of king we are to follow and about ourselves as followers. The idea of a king over Israel was not a new one as we come to the book of 1 Samuel. For God had promised Abraham in Genesis 17 that kings would someday come from him. God had also promised Abraham in Genesis 12 that a seed would come from him, a descendant would come from Abraham, and that through Abraham all the families of the earth would be blessed. As time would reveal, these promises are connected to one another. God repeated the promise of a king to Moses in Deuteronomy 17. He said someday God would have a king for his people. About 450 years after Moses, God raised up a man by the name of Samuel. Samuel was a leader in Israel. He's a prophet, he's a priest, he's a judge or a ruler in Israel. And it is Samuel that God uses to anoint first Saul and then David as king. Thus, both the first and second Samuel, the books of first and second Samuel, are about kings and God sovereignly establishing a king over his people according to his plan and fulfillment of his promises. Three points in my message this morning. Point number one, the people want a king like the other nations have. Point number two, Saul is a king like the other nations have, a selfish and sinful king. And point number three, David is a decidedly different king. He is one who trusts in the Lord. So point number one, the people want a king like other nations. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Samuel chapter 8. We're going to spend a fair amount of time reading the scripture in 1 Samuel this morning. 
So turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 8. In Samuel's day, Israel was spiritually troubled. It was a time of much idolatry and disobedience in Israel. At the end of the book of Judges, this period is described as a time when every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Not only was it a time of spiritual upheaval, it was also a time of political and national crisis in Israel. God's chosen people living in the promised land were under constant attack by a ruthless neighbor, the Philistines. The Philistines had even gone so far as to capture the Ark of the Covenant containing the Ten Commandments. In the midst of this deepening national crisis, the people did not turn to the Lord, but rather, instead, the people turned around and seeing other nations with their kings and their powerful armies wanted a king to rule over them like the other nations had. Follow along with me as I read and let the Scriptures tell the story. 1 Samuel 8, verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. You see, God understood that when the people of Israel, had, who had been ruled by God since coming into the promised land, when they were demanding a king like the other nations, they were rejecting him. They were rejecting the one true God and his direct rule over them as his people. Let me read on. They have rejected me from being king over them according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And now in verses 10 to 17, Samuel goes on to describe how this king will take their sons and daughters, their servants, their livestock, and draft them into his service. This king will put them in the king's army and in his fields to do his work. This king will confiscate the best of the land and give it to his friends. He will tax them on the goods and the produce that they produce and use. And he will use it for his own purposes. Samuel concludes his warning starting in verse 18. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us. 
that we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Well, what lesson is there here for us? When confronted with suffering and trial and difficulty, these Israelites looked for a new strategy. They looked for a new action plan. They didn't look to their God, and certainly they did not look at their own hard attitudes towards their circumstances. They were not trusting in God, nor were they trusting in His timing. He had promised them a king, just not yet. We, too, are guilty of that at times. Instead of asking for God's help, coming to His Word, seeking His wisdom, we are, more off, we are more often more interested in prescribing the kind of action we want God to take. In light of the situation the people of Israel faced, you can understand from a human perspective why they might take this course of action. They were being defeated and pummeled by enemies with great kings leading unified armies. They too thought they needed a king like that. That's somewhat rational, isn't it? We see something that's working. We want to imitate it. We want to replicate it. Yet God viewed it as rejecting His kingship. You see, we can come up with plans and solutions that are completely reasonable, clearly logical, and obviously practical. And yet we've come up with them by an utterly godless means. Taking our own ideas and putting them into place instead of turning to our God and Father. Point two. Saul is a king like other nations, a selfish and sinful king. So the search begins for this king, and Samuel quickly finds the man Go right to the next chapter, chapter 9 of 1 Samuel, verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, verse 2, and he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. This was the man who would be their first earthly king, this Saul. Tall, handsome, and a great warrior. Today, he'd probably be on Dancing with the Stars or The Bachelor, for instance. He's that kind of guy. It's human nature to look for these kinds of people, isn't it? It's the way of the world. You know, most of our presidents and most of the chief executive officers of our businesses, they're tall, handsome guys. It's the way we think. It's who we look to. Well, in the eyes of the people of Israel, there is no doubt that this Saul is the man. You can hear them saying, we found our king. And things start out well for Saul. The nation unites behind him. He leads Israel in conquering enemies. But as time passes, Saul's true character begins to be revealed. 
Saul becomes consumed with using his rule to accomplish what he wants. To serve himself and his own desire for power and control. And not for the glory of the Lord. Saul rejected God's word. And as a result, God ultimately rejected Saul as king in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel. And in chapter 16, God through Samuel anoints David to be the next king after Saul. This young David is brought to the attention of Israel in chapter 17 of 1 Samuel with his great victory over the giant Philistine warrior Goliath. It's a moment of great joy in Israel for almost everybody. Not for Saul. What is Saul thinking about this young man? Turn over to chapter 18 of 1 Samuel. Chapter 18 and verse 6. Let's read about the people's reaction and Saul's reaction to David's victory. Chapter 18, verse 6. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, from striking down Goliath, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Oops. Verse 8. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands and what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Verse 10. The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. What a great thing Saul has done, right? He's made David a commander in his army. Well, guess what Saul's purpose is? To send David into the toughest, meanest fights in the neighborhood, in the nations around him, and have him get killed in battle. Saul is trying to murder David. Verse 14. And David had success in all his undertakings. For the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. 
But all Israel and Judah loved David. And that enrages Saul. Look down at verse 28. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. Saul's own daughter loves this David. Not only the people, now his own family. Verse 29, Then Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Now, you would think Saul would be glad for David, right? Great warrior. Defeats the enemies. Defeats Goliath. No. He's jealous. He's bitter. Saul can't stand a rival. Saul should have been glad over God's love of David. But instead, Saul was small and petty. Go down to chapter 19, verse 1. See another of Saul's family. Saul's son, Jonathan. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan... Saul's son delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. So David goes on the run. And Saul will pursue him. This sin of jealousy led Saul to pursue murder. And over the next four chapters, Saul's pursuit of David to kill him results in not only multiple attempts to capture and kill David, but Saul attempts to kill his own son Jonathan for helping his friend David. Even though if anyone should have been jealous of David, it should have been Jonathan. It was Jonathan who would sit on the throne after his father died, right? Jonathan who would take the seat as king of Israel. But Jonathan loves David. Jonathan, along with David in 1 Samuel, is a great example of trust in God. But that doesn't affect Saul. Matter of fact, Saul comes to Nob in chapter 22. And the priests who lived at Nob, the priests of Israel who lived at Nob, had unknowingly helped David. They, they had given him bread. They, they, have, they had done sacrifices for him. They didn't know that David was considered by Saul as an enemy. And when Saul found out that they helped him, Saul comes to to the city and orders his own servants to kill the 85 priests in Nob. Saul's servants refuse. So Saul goes and gets an Edomite, a foreigner, an enemy of Israel, and he has him kill the priests of Nob. Not only kill the priests, 
kill their wives and their children as well. He decimates this town. All in pursuit of killing David. Well, Saul's most consistent pattern is one of serving himself. He is vain. He is proud. And he uses his life to serve his own ends. And when you stare at this kind of sin, it is really ugly. See, Saul was pursuing the mirage of his own greatness. Even worse, he was chasing the one God had chosen to lead his people in David. It's a harrowing, blood-chilling decision to oppose God. And we look down on Saul, don't we? For the evil that he brought. Yet the Bible tells us we are all guilty of sin. Now, you're most likely not pursuing someone to murder them. But is there someone you'd like to see have some trouble at work? Maybe be undone, lose their job? Perhaps you're a student at school. Is there someone there, an instructor, someone you hold a grudge against? Or perhaps there's someone at church. Who do you complain about in your life? Let me warn you. Becoming a judge of someone else according to your own standards is a dangerous thing. Be very careful. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Let me ask, do you struggle with anger? Maybe you dress it up with a nice word like frustration. Well, your sin is the same type of sin as Saul's. Just different in degree. Before God's eyes, you're guilty. You're called to repentance, to trust in Christ, to confess your sin to God, to be reconciled to your brother. I pray God will deliver us from jealousy and hatred as individuals and as a church. Let us turn to Christ, the one who provides complete forgiveness and deliverance from our deepest and darkest sins. Well, that brings us to point three. David is a decidedly different king. He is one who trusts in the Lord. Turn with me over to 1 Samuel and chapter 24 for our main text for today. 1 Samuel and chapter 24. In searching for a new king for Israel, God led Samuel to a tiny little town called Bethlehem. To the most unlikely 
of royal figures to the youngest of eight sons who had been assigned the lowliest job of all the brothers watching over the sheep in the field. It was the little shepherd David who God told Samuel to anoint king over Israel to take Saul's place at the proper time. Israel needed a different sort of king than Saul and the other nations. Now, as we come to 1 Samuel, we see something beautiful here about David. This king does not take his kingdom his own way, but rather trusts in God's direction, in God's timing, and in God's providence. Well, as we have seen in the previous chapter, Saul has closed in on David repeatedly, and each time the Lord has preserved David. Now, in 1 Samuel 24, Saul is closing in again. But this time, the story has a dramatic and radical twist. 1 Samuel 24, verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men. These are the crack stormtroopers of Israel. These are the Marines, the ones you want to be with you when you've got to get the job done. Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, the sheep pens, by the way, where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost part of the cave. Well, Saul had business to take care of. Saul has a very common human activity that needed to take place, and Saul wants to be by himself. There's no rest area here. There's no porta potty So he goes into the cave. But Saul goes into the very cave where David and his men are hiding from him. The hunted now becomes the hunter. Saul is alone and vulnerable and doesn't realize the situation he's in. David has Saul right where he wants him, right? Saul is within David's grip. Verse 4, And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Well, David's men are asking him to do the very thing the world would do. Kings for centuries and centuries before and after Saul have been killed to make way for the new king. As a matter of fact, not only has the king been killed to make way for the new king, all the king's Children have been killed so that they can't possibly be king ever, no matter what. And David's men, and David himself, must see some kind of justice in this. It could even be construed as an act of self-defense, right? Or even protection for the nation from the madman Saul. David's men urge him to go and destroy his enemy. 
David is urged to be a king like the other nations all around, to strike the enemy, to conquer and destroy. David's men claim the Lord is behind this deliverance. It must be the Lord's will. It must be His doing. You can almost hear them singing, singing, This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad. Here He is. Let's kill Him. The last part of verse 4. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. David's heart must have been pounding within him. What's wrong with him? Can't David find the courage to kill Saul? Is David fearful of Saul? Let me remind you, this is David who killed the lion, who killed the bear, who slew Goliath. Does his courage fail him here? Does he choke under the pressure? No. His heart skips a beat because he regrets what he has done. David's heart struck him because in even cutting off a corner of Saul's robe, he has disrespected the Lord's anointed king. Saul had been anointed by Samuel as king over Israel. Notice David's response to his men in verse 6. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. When David didn't get the job done, David's men wanted to kill Saul. And the language that's used here, the way it's translated, so David persuaded his men with these words. In the Hebrew, it's literally, so David tore into his men. He ripped into them to get them to not attack Saul. David is standing up for the Lord's anointed even in the face of his men. David's men must have been struck with disbelief. But David will not be this sort of king. Note the contrast even in the text. David's men call Saul the enemy in verse 4. David calls Saul the Lord's anointed twice in verse 6. David will not take the kingdom by violence. The Lord has not removed Saul from the throne yet, and David was not going to do it his own way. The end of verse 7. 
And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Verse 8. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul. Wouldn't you have loved to have been a mouse on the rock in this scene? What a scene. David says, My Lord the King. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for He is the Lord's anointed. See, my Father, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunted my life to take it. What a speech. David goes on. Verse 12. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. David is not going to do this thing. Saul need not fear David. After whom, verse 14, after whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Notice in verses 12 to 15, David turns his voice to the Lord and invites the Lord to make a judgment between himself and Saul. In verse 14, what does David compare himself to? He says, Saul, before you the Lord's anointed, I am like a dead dog or a flea. In other words, I don't matter to you. I am not going to harm you. Saul's response, verse 16. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Now let me tell you, kings don't weep. Saul particularly doesn't weep in the Scripture. It's a sign of weakness. Saul is genuinely moved. Verse 17, he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. 
And you have declared this day how you have dealt with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. Notice in verse 17, Saul admits he's wrong. In verse 19, Saul asked the Lord to reward David with good and admits that Saul, that David really is God's chosen king over Israel. And then in verse 21, the ultimate submission before David, he asks for David's protection. The king asks the one who had just bowed before him for protection. Well, here we get a glimpse that victory for David, for God's true king, will come by the way of suffering humility, and obedience. I say a glimpse because Saul will soon return to his old ways of trying to kill David, of chasing him. Matter of fact, Psalms 34, Psalms 52, Psalm 56, Psalm 57, they are journals. They are psalms of David's experience and thinking and thoughts during this time. It provides you great insight into this man. These are hard times and hard places. David's life is threatened over and over and over. But here, in this few verses, we see marvel and wonder in Saul's voice. Even Saul recognizes this is a decidedly different kind of king. An unquestionably different kind of king. An unexpectedly different kind of king. Let's understand that in Samuel 24, the power to be merciful to Saul comes from a heart that is captured by God. The power to not claim the throne from Saul early comes from the Lord working in David's heart. Not because David is a great man, but because the Lord is a great God working through David. David is the central contrast with Saul in 1 Samuel. David spares Saul because David trusts the Lord. He trusts the Lord to make him king in God's good timing. In Deuteronomy 32, the scripture says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Well, David knows it's not his judgment to execute, but David trusts God to do it, once again, in God's good timing. 
This story of kings in conflict is painful to watch. Saul's pursuit of David is a picture of all of our opposition to God. Saul disappoints God and us. David is presented as though he has a heart for God, and he does. But David will also eventually disappoint. But yet David points us on to one who is to come. One who will not disappoint. One in whom we can trust completely to the end. While we have all failed to keep God's law, while we have all loved, not loved the Lord our God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves, while we are not a community of self-righteous people, rather we are a church of the not righteous, you see, hope is not in us. Just like hope was not in Saul. And hope is not in David. Hope is not in us. It is outside of us. Christ is our hope. He is good. And we are not. Like David, are we trusting God? Are we trusting Christ in the midst of our sin and of our problems? Or are we seeking forgiveness and release from our guilt and the resolution of our issues of problems in our own way? Or are we seeking it God's way? Are we impatiently trying to bring about what we perceive to be the plan of God in our timing? Or are we willing to wait upon the Lord and His timing? It is no accident. Rather, it is the providence and the sovereignty of our God that the New Testament starts in Matthew 1 with these words. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. In this story, we find in David parallels that point us to our Lord Jesus Christ. And what kind of king, the ultimate ultimate promised king, the anointed one, the Messiah is going to be? Matter of fact, the overall point of the book of 1 Samuel, of Saul and of David, and the story of David and Goliath, is to bring David onto the scene as the king of importance in Israel. He will be the king of Israel who trusts the Lord in ways in which Saul did not. He will be the man of God whose own heart is for God. For this David is from the tribe of Judah as the ruler in Israel is foretold to be in Genesis 49. These events set the stage for the Lord to make his covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7, a covenant which promises a righteous ruler in Israel to sit on David's throne forever and ever for eternity. This, of course, finds its fulfillment in Jesus, the son of David, the lion of Judah, whose dominion will be everlasting. Ask yourself, did Jesus call forth an army of angels to dispatch those opposed to him? Or did he call down fire from heaven to consume his enemies? No. Jesus is not that kind of king. Jesus was offered the kingdoms of this world early by Satan in Matthew chapter 4. He said no. Satan offered them to him 
without going through the crucifixion and death and the bearing of the weight of all of our sin on that cross. In John chapter 6, when Jesus is feeding the 5,000, the people are excited. They want Jesus to be, be king now. They want Jesus to lead a revolt against the Roman occupiers in Israel. Jesus said no. The time was not right. The worldly king they wanted was not the way of Christ. This was not the kingdom Jesus was called to exercise and establish. You see, this Jesus is a distinctly different kind of king. A unique king. A one and only. His was not a mission of seizing opportunities, of striking down enemies. No, his mission was one of humiliation, of suffering, of insult, of turning the other cheek, of saving his people from their sin. Though attractive opportunities came for power that would seem wise to follow by the world's wisdom, he rejected all of these and entrusted himself to his Father. We too are called to entrust ourselves to Christ, to trust him daily, to trust him in each and every circumstance of life, to trust him in the dark times and in the blessings. We are called to trust in Christ, the decidedly different king who died for our sins. Let's pray.